All right, so that was the existence of God, now the knowability of God. Greg Allison, in his book, Historical Theology, says, The church has not only believed in the existence of God, but also that God can be known. This knowledge is not and cannot be exhaustive, for God is incomprehensible. Thus, human beings can never know all there is to know about God or about any particular aspect of God. But God is knowable to the degree and in the way that is sufficient for human beings to have a personal relationship with him during their earthly lives. There's two theologians generally give two categories or ways that we can know about God. The first is what we call general revelation. Uh, General revelation is basically what we can conceive about God from nature, from our own logic, from human conscience, uh, among other things. General revelation basically gives us the arguments for God that we just gave. Like you could come up with all those arguments without the Bible, and, and people have. So the question that I want to pose to you guys is what theology comes from those arguments? So from the cosmological argument that God is the unmoved mover, from the teleological argument that he's the great designer of the universe, that what, what could you say about God based on those arguments? That he created Earth? Yeah, he's a creator. He's omnipotent, all-powerful, right? Mm-hmm. What else? If you're thinking one, you just got to say it. Got to be rapid fire. Don't wait your turn. There's nothing before him. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So he's he's uh, eternal, we could say. Mm-hmm. He's infinite with relation to both time and space. He's... Uh, this is a word that, this is a Latin word, I don't really know what a good English version of it would be, but it's the word aseity, which just means that God has no source. He is his own source. He's the only being that does not rely on something else for its existence. Could you say that he was the judge with the morality one? Yeah, yeah, and I think um, in addition to being judge, you could say he's holy, righteous, pure, perfect, right? He's like so morally perfect and pure. And we we can get to that purely by reason. I think so, by means of human conscience yeah. and morality. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least that he's infinitely more so than we are. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's um, good. We could add to that list, but I want to ask you, what does this theology produce in you? If this is all that there is to know about God, how would that make you feel? Humble. Humble? Yeah. Yeah. You would not feel near to him. You wouldn't feel like you have a relationship with him. What else? Small. Small. Unable. Yeah. Unable to reach him. Yeah. He's unrelatable. Yeah. Out of control. Yeah. You would almost feel like you were... Like a pawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> I think there would be some frustration, especially looking at suffering in the world. Yeah. You could say, like, okay, mm-hmm. God is all good, but we see evil. And yeah. with, like, without this, without putting love in there, it's, like, inconsistent, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's... Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. Um, 
this theology, what general revelation gives us, is a theology of divine transcendence. And we talked about transcendence and imminence earlier. So this gives us divine transcendence. It is, as John Calvin said, it's the knowledge of God the creator. This is not distinctively Christian. The Christian God is not less than these things, but he is much more than these things. In order to truly know him, we need a second kind of revelation, a second kind of a second way to know God, and it's what we call special revelation. Um, Calvin said, you can know God as the creator, but that doesn't do you any good until you know him as the redeemer. Mm-hmm. Special revelation teaches us about God, the redeemer. Uh, it teaches us that God is imminent, not just transcendent. Where does special revelation come from? Somebody turn to Hebrews chapter 1 in the Bible. Who wants to read for us? Yeah, Ryan, will you read through, like, halfway through verse 3? Okay, so starting at verse 3. Starting at verse 1 and then halfway through verse 3. Okay, gotcha. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word, word of his power. Perfect. Thank you. What does this tell us about special revelation? How can we know more about God than this? What's that? Through Jesus. Through Jesus and what else? His word, yeah. So his his written word and his uh, incarnate word, his living word, Jesus, right? God has actually spoken to us. The, the This God who is creator, all-powerful, eternal, infinite, holy, has decided he wants to reveal himself to us and speak to us. Um, he does so to give another Calvinism. Uh, Calvin says it's like it's like baby talk. It's like you're talking to your little baby in their crib and you're just goo-gooing and gaga-ing. They like you're communicating in a way that they can understand. That's what it's like for this God to come near to us and speak to us. He even puts on human flesh in Christ and comes to us and shows us what he is like. For this reason, uh, Herman Bovink, a Dutch theologian in the early 20th century, said. To know God does not consist of knowing a great deal about him. Remember, it's not just that we would know facts about God, but rather that we have seen him in the person of Christ, that we have encountered him on our life's way, and that in the experience of our soul, we have come to know his virtues, his righteousness and holiness, his compassion and his grace. The goal of, uh, of doing theology is that we would see Christ. And in seeing Christ, we would come to actually know uh, who God is. There's a few more group discussion questions written down. We're going we're gonna to skip these for the sake of time. But do you all feel like, and tell me if not, you feel like you have a grasp on the difference between general and special revelation? You feel like you have a grasp on the difference in God's transcendence and God's eminence? Transcendence is big. Eminence is near. God the creator, God the redeemer. Um, why do you think, let's just talk about this for a second. Why do you think it's so important for Christians to hold tightly to both God's transcendence and his eminence? 
Are we saying that because we can know more about God through Christ that none of this stuff matters? No. Right? So why do we why do we need to hold both of those together? What do we lose if we lose one of them? If we lose transcendence, then we lose all for who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we lose imminence, then we're back at where we started, um, where he's this unapproachable, far away God. Yeah. So we, we can't afford to lose the fear of God, which the Bible says is the beginning of wisdom, or the intimacy that we have through Christ. Ryan, what you say? I think if we lose um, at least... Um, actually, never mind. I'm so sorry. That's I'm okay. thinking, thinking something else. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think, like if you were to survey maybe the, your Christian experiences, church experiences, or just at large, sort of American Christianity, which one are we more at risk of losing? It's okay if you don't all agree. Transcendence. Anybody want to give a vote for eminence? That's the low. Yeah. I think we're more at risk of losing that. Really? Yeah, I think if like something bad happens to us, or you get a diagnosis, or yeah. something like I think to like. Why are all these bad things? If this is yeah. a God that loves me, how could yeah. he let these bad things happen? And I think a lot of people turn away from their faith when they yeah. have something, like a pivotal moment like it's that. It's interesting you say that, because I think formally we're more at risk of losing the transcendence of God. Like in our mm-hmm. teaching, in our preaching, in our book writing, we don't yeah. talk as much about this. But functionally, we may be more prone to do what you said, which mm-hmm. is to lose yeah, the intimacy of God. Mm-hmm. So like, like, you know, we're not gonna believe there's hell. We're not gonna yeah. Believe, but but I want to hold on to God. And, yeah. And so that's why I would would have said that. But I think the relational point that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's worth saying too, like liberal Christianity, by which I don't mean politically liberal, but theologically liberal, always wants to edit these. But fundamentalism does the other, does the opposite, right? And there's always a ditch on on either side. Um, and it's beautiful that the the most important moment in the world, in history, is the cross, where we most clearly see the two of those things meeting, right? We see God in human flesh bearing God's own wrath on the cross for us because he loves us, right? So it like if we start with the theology of the cross and work out, everything else is going to fall into place and take care of itself. That gets us into God's nature. What is God actually like? Uh, What do we learn about God from special revelation? God's attributes. What What are some attributes that we see from God in the person of Jesus? So not necessarily the big transcendent things that we already saw, but in the person of Jesus, who is God revealed to be? Healer. Ryan, what you say? Merciful. Yeah. Yes. Personal. Serving. Yeah. Came not to be served, but to serve. Empathetic. 
Gross. Selfless. Patient. What was the last one? Somebody say something after patient. I said true. There's one really obvious one that nobody said. Well, love. We could we could go on, but um, and that's not an attribute of God, tr- being Trinity. It's who He is. We'll get there in just a second. Um, he, all these things are true. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's just. He will spare no expense to save us. He will pay literally the infinite price to save us. He wants a relationship with us. But most importantly, we learn that God is himself a trinity. Um, what is God like in himself? That's the question when we're asking, when we're talking about the trinity. What is God actually like in his own being, in his own nature? The doctrine of the Trinity is the most fundamental and most important doctrine in the Christian life. I despise when people treat the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, like it's a landmine that they just have to get through without accidentally stepping on any heresy bombs, but they don't want to spend any time there. They just want to move on to the stuff that they're not as afraid to talk about. I am convinced that in this doctrine is so much joy and life and love because this is actually who God is and that we could spend the rest of our lives just thinking about the Trinity. The, the formal sort of summary of the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is one in essence or substance, yet three in persons. There is one God who exists in three persons. As the New City Catechism for Kids puts it, which I'd recommend all of you buying for yourselves, uh, how many persons are there in God? There is one God in three persons, as Lydia would say, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Uh, or Holy Spirit. Um, I want to go back to another quote from Augustine on this, um, this book on the Trinity. He says, when we think of, this is kind of long, but he says, when we think about God, the Trinity, we are aware that our thoughts are quite inadequate to their object. So we're not denying the fact that it's really, really hard to grasp. It's impossible to comprehend this, actually. We can take hold of it. We can believe it by faith. We can have faith-seeking understanding, but we can't actually comprehend it fully. We're aware that our thoughts are quite inadequate to their object and incapable of grasping him as he is. Even by men of the caliber of the Apostle Paul, He can only be seen, as it says, like a puzzling reflection in a mirror. Now, since we ought to think about the Lord our God always and can never think of him as he deserves, and since at all times we should be praising him and blessing him, and yet no words of ours are capable of expressing him, I begin by asking him to help me understand and explain what I have in mind and to pardon any blunders I may make. For I am as keenly aware of my weakness as I am of my willingness. I love that. Like... Uh, my admiration for Augustine grows every time I read him because he's the most important theologian in church history and he's so humble. I'm as aware of my weakness as I am of my willingness. Would that we would have that approach when we begin to talk about God, that we would be aware of our weakness, but that wouldn't make us any less willing. And that we would be willing, but it wouldn't make us any less humble and honest about our weaknesses. So if God is one in essence or, or substance and three in persons, 
but let's spend just a couple minutes talking about what that uh, does not mean or what that means that he is not. There are, there are not three gods. So the first Trinitarian heresy that you need to know of is tritheism. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are not three separate gods. There's one God, one being, one essence who exists in three persons. Um, there is the second, this is probably the most important heresy in church history. It's called Arianism. There's a theologian, pastor by the name of Arius, who taught that Jesus, or the Son of God, the Word of God, was the first and most important creation of God, through whom he created everybody else and everything else, but that the Son was a creation. So this is like the Father is God and the Son and the Spirit are like almost God. They're somewhere between God and humanity. That's called Arianism. The third uh, big obvious trinity or heresy, and this, these two have been the most significant in church history, is called modalism. Root word there is mode. It just means that there is one God who exists and, and reveals himself sometimes as Father, sometimes as Son, and sometimes as Holy Spirit. But he's not all three persons. He just has these different modes in which he appears. Can anybody, by the way, think of a, a moment in the Bible that immediately like, cuts across modalism? Christ baptism. Yeah, Christ baptism. Mm-hmm. You have the Son going down on the water, the Father speaking, this is my beloved Son, and the Spirit descending on him, all yeah. at the same time, same place. Good. Um, those are the three big Trinitarian heresies. We could spend a lot of time, and I wish that we had enough time. Um, if anybody wants to stay for after-hours theology, we can do this. But I want to I just give you some passages from the Gospel of John in particular to go and read and think about and meditate on as they relate to the doctrine of the Trinity this week. So five sections from the Gospel of John. John 1, 1 through 5. John 8, 48 through 59. John 10, verse 30. John 14, 8 through 11. And then 14, verses 16 and 17. All of those are just rich Trinitarian passages to meditate on and think about the life of God within himself. Um, but I, I do want to make this practical because I promise that isn't, this isn't just about head knowledge but about life. Why does the doctrine of the Trinity matter right now? Why is it that this doctrine is worth meditating on? Why is it that this changes your life? I'm going to give you three reasons. And the first is that without the Trinity, we cannot say that God is love. If God is just a single personal God, if, there is God, if God is one in essence and one in person, what would it mean that God is love? It could mean one of two things. It could, it could mean, one, that he, his love is totally selfish and self-centered love. That from eternity past, this single personal God has just been obsessed with himself. That his love is all-consuming love for himself. Which would not make him that great. It would not make him the kind of God that we would probably want to worship. Or it could mean, if if you say, no, his love is about us and his love is giving and it's external love and it's directed outwards. Then what, what was he doing and what was he before he created us? He must have been really lonely. And really sad and sorry and just sitting around just like, oh, I need you. I need to create somebody to complete myself because I'm so lonely. 
which then just makes him really weak. But also, you know, if you've ever been in a dating relationship or, you know, seen somebody in a dating relationship where one person really needs the other, what do they do? They smother them. They crush them, right? Because no person can bear that weight. So God would, would crush us if he needed us to fulfill him. But if God is a tri-personal God, then from eternity past, you have a relationship where the Father is pouring out his love on his Son in the bond of the Holy Spirit. Augustine actually said that the Spirit is the love that the Father and the Son share with one another. And you can look at Romans 5 where, where he says that God has poured his love into our hearts in the Spirit. So the same Spirit who is the love between the Father and the Son is poured into our hearts when we become Christians, which means we're caught up in the love that the Father and the Son have for one another. So without the Trinity, we can't say that God is love. Without the Trinity, the death of Christ could not save us. If Jesus was just a man and not also God, then his death could be some sort of example. Um, It could be inspirational in some way, but it couldn't save us. Why? Because one, one man could be a substitute for how many other people? One. But if he's also God and he's infinite, then he can be a fitting substitute for humanity because he's a human, but he can be a fitting substitute for all of humanity because he's infinite. He, he can pay the infinite price of God's wrath. If, God is just, if Jesus is just God and just appears to be a man but isn't actually a man, then he's not a fitting substitute because he's not a human. But if he's both God and man, then his death can actually save us. And third, without the Trinity, we will never understand or experience the depth of our salvation. A few weeks ago, I preached on the passage in Galatians, end of three or beginning of four, I think beginning of four, where Paul says that God, yeah, beginning of four, that God has um, poured his spirit into our, that he sent his son into the world to bear the curse of humanity and sent his spirit into our hearts by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The experience of our salvation is that God sent his son into the world to be our substitute and then sent his spirit into our hearts to awaken in us belief in his son, by which belief we actually become united to Christ. So we are one with Christ in the sense that the very same love, and it took, guys, I, like, it took like three years ago for me to, to grasp, to, to realize this. I, I wouldn't say I've even grasped it yet. But God the Father loves you with the same love with which he loves his son. <laughs> Not in, in degree and in quantity, like in, in, in quality and in quantity. It's the same love with which he has loved his son from eternity past. He doesn't just love you on days when you're doing well. He doesn't love some future version of you. He loves you with the same love with which he loves Christ because you are in Christ. And you, you are caught up in the life of the Trinity by the Spirit who dwells in you, by whom you're also bound to everybody else who is in Christ. The entire shape of the gospel is Trinitarian. If we lose the Trinity, we don't, we don't have the gospel. Um. Another quote from Bob Inc. as we close. He says, The knowledge of God does not make us more learned. Again, this isn't, the knowledge of God isn't about puffing up our, our minds. It does not make us more learned, at least not in the first place, but it makes us wiser, better, happier. It makes us blessed and gives us eternal life. Hereafter, but also now. The knowledge of God has not as its goal only that we should sometime in the future die blessedly, 
But its goal is also that we should immediately from that moment on live blessedly. The knowledge of God makes us, again, happy in the sense that it, it, the classical meaning of the word that we have this deep and abiding joy and peace and satisfaction in our souls. Uh, again, to quote Augustine, the fullness of our happiness beyond which there is none else. And I actually skipped part of the quote because we weren't at the Trinity yet. But the full quote is the fullness of our happiness beyond which there is none else is this, to enjoy God the three in whose image we were made. Um, it's 8.52. Take five minutes or so. You've got a few questions just for personal reflection, not for group discussion. Jot down some answers to that, and then we'll come back together and close for a couple minutes.